Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I'm your host. Today is Monday, December 22, 2014, and today I have a great interview show for you with Ben Falk from Vermont. Ben is a really great guy. He runs a planning firm called Whole Systems Design, and he is involved in fairly comprehensive. I would call him a permaculture designer, but if you're scared off by that word, just call him basically a comprehensive designer where he brings a comprehensive perspective about designing the needs for human habitat into our current context. Ben has written a book on the subject, and it's one of the most beautiful, well-integrated books that I've ever read. I've looked for people to bring on the show who are living more independent, self-sufficient lifestyles, and Ben is one of those people that I think is a really great example of how to do this in a modern context and to integrate all of the great things about the current highly technological world that we live in, but also to benefit from some of the old world uh, technology and benefits that we simply don't <laughs> probably respect very much today. It's a really great show. We go over a comprehensive perspective on designing for heat, for housing, for uh, food, and also a little bit of uh, more, I guess, uh, intellectual theory, a little bit of theory behind design. And we also talk about Ben's story. So I hope you enjoy this interview. I'm going to skip coming back at the end with any closing notes. So uh, the interview will simply end. If you'd like to reach me, my email address is joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com. I thank you each and every one of you uh, who gets in touch with me. Twitter at RadicalPF, Facebook.com slash RadicalPersonalFinance. Thank you to those of you who have joined the Irregulars program. As I'm releasing these shows while I am away, I am working hard on increasing the bonus content for you guys in the Irregulars program and also on really building that value. So I'm working hard at that uh, while I'm away this week. And I'll be back on January the 5th with some with the normal regular content of the show. Enjoy. So Ben, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate you being with me today. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. <laughs> I've brought you on to talk about design and design from a more integrated holistic perspective. And as a beginning point, I think the name of your company is a perfect place to start. Your company is called Whole Systems Design. So let's let's kick off with that. What does whole systems design mean, and what do you do as a firm? Sure. Well, to me, whole systems design is um, well. Just the term whole systems is um, denotes um, the idea that we're we're um, thinking about, and hopefully we're, that we're thinking about um, the whole that we're working with. That we're thinking about all parts of a set of of fe features and processes, a, a, a set of um, conditions that are interrelated, right? So that's a system. And since we're saying whole systems design, design, you know, denotes an idea of, um, of intending something and responding to something, a, a challenge, a solution to a challenge in, a, in very simple terms. So whole systems design um, is, you know, just the name that I put to this idea when I was in college. I was uh, working as a carpenter and a builder and saw firsthand a lot of and had before that, really, for my whole life, but especially more acutely when I was building houses in college, uh, many responses, many design responses um, that were lacking, very severely lacking because specialists were involved throughout the process. And everyone was looking at their little piece of, you know, 
the elephant, and as the adage goes, you know, no one really realized they were looking at an elephant. They were just looking at one part of this huge beast and doing the one part to their best ability and sometimes even that one part really well, whether it's the architect or the guy pouring the foundation or the people putting up the timber frame, which was the part of it that I often worked on. But the whole, the result of the whole process and the, the, the net result was you know, at best, usually very, very weak and incompetent um, and inadequate to solve the challenges, you know, of the site or of the people living in the home uh, or, or usually both. What's interesting to me is that you came at it from the perspective, it sounds like, of construction and architecture. And I came at it from the perspective of financial planning because I noticed the mm. same thing in financial planning where oftentimes in the, t in the field of financial planning, there are many specialists and people are thinking that they're looking for a specialized answer. And there is a need for specialists who are experts who have an, a deep level of expertise in an area. But what happens if you only go to a specialist, you only get that specialist's answer. It seems to me it's more likely that if you go to a surgeon that the surgeon is going to recommend surgery uh, than that somebody who might be a, you know, a natural, I don't know what the term is, but a naturopathic physician. And so uh, it's not that there's, if you have a need for surgery, you need a surgeon who has an in-depth level of knowledge. But in our society, we seem to have lost much of the ability to integrate different aspects of design into essentially meeting our needs and to bring them together in a holistic a holistic way. Yeah, just to say just to tag on to that, I think that's that's absolutely right on. I think it really emerges more often than not um, from failing to be able to ask the right questions and ask the you know, come at it from a broad picture. We like you said, if you're a surgeon, you know, your answer to it is how to how do we do surgery? Or if you're you know, you're someone who um, you know, subscribes um, uh, you know, supplements, that's, that's the answers within what supplements are best. But we, we tend to fail to ask, to kind of back up and ask the, the most broad, kind of most holistic questions about why, you know, why is the problem what it is to begin with? Um, and that's exactly, I think, where, we'll, where we find the most effective answers, which is usually requires many specialists to come up with that, that holistic answer, not just one. So share with me your career path. You start noticing these things at working as a builder. How did you get from where you were then to where you are now working as a designer of human habitats? Sure. Well, I think first for me it's rooted in, um, you know, I don't know, at some point growing up, maybe middle school or high school, I started to be able to, to recognize it, just a, a recognition that there's just so much failure in the world around us. There's so much inadequate and just poor response to a problem that, that you know, around me. I grew up in the suburbs and I just, just see this everywhere, whether it was just, you know, in roads or, or buildings, certainly, or, um, or organizations. And um, so that was kind of the a formative experience was kind of witnessing um you know, failed responses to, to challenges. And then, yeah, I got to college. And I think for me, what was probably the first real series of events was uh, meeting Dr. John Todd, who's a father of modern day ecological design. Is that credit as the inventor of the living machine, you know, a biological way to treat wastewater. Just 
you know, a forerunner in imitating how nature works, really, um, you know, an early, early pioneering, you know, pioneer and, and really defining that field. So I was lucky he was teaching at the University of Vermont where I was in school and I was actually thinking about quitting and going to be a rock climbing bum. I did for a little while because that's what I liked to do a lot more than, you know, what I was studying in college. It wasn't very compelling for me. And then I took his course and I realized that there was actually a hands-on creative response to problems that could be very direct and we could do ourselves. And we didn't, if we wanted to solve big problems or even small problems, we didn't have to, you know, petition someone to do it. We didn't have to get a politician to do something for us necessarily. We could actually kind of take on a problem directly um, and really change the rules of the game and uh, address a problem through, you know, thinking, thinking through a problem, designing a solution, and then making that solution, actually building it with our own hands, like he did with the living machine. Uh, so that, I think, kicked me off and more formally in the direction that I've been on ever since, uh, which is just to, um, if, I, if I see something wrong, you know, make a different way, as, as Buckminster Fuller is often quoted, you know, don't, don't, um, something to the effect, I'm sure I'll butcher it right now, but, you know, there's no resisting, you know, no fighting something that's wrong. You, you make, make a different system that makes the old system that you don't like obsolete, you know, you know don't, don't just try to put up walls and resist something you don't like, but make something else instead. And so I think that's what, um, I guess what my whole life, uh, has, has, has been becoming for the last 15 to 20 years. And, um, my work is just an, a, an organic outgrowth of that lifestyle. Um, and we, we now work for, for people who want to, um, kind of, I guess, uh, undertake those same, that same approach to some extent or similar approaches themselves in their, in their own life. And they're often coming from very different backgrounds than, than I came from for sure. So how do you label yourself? Uh, so do you call yourself a designer, a permaculture designer, a human habitat system designer? Do you have a label that you apply to yourself? Yeah, I, you know, I have called myself, you know, a, a, um, a land designer or, you know, human habitat system designer. That's a little bit of a mouthful, so I don't really use that. But that is really what we're getting at is, is a whole, you know, the idea of, of my business and of, I think, my lifestyles whole human habitats you know we're looking at all you know we're we're not going to shy away from anything that's involved with keeping us alive here and having a good life so anything that's in that purview um let's think about those systems those needs and let's let's try to meet needs in a hopefully very um non-detrimental way and as as much as possible in a regenerative and enhancing way so you know, yeah, it's, it's a bit beyond, obviously, what most architects or what any architect tends to do or what a just a landscape architect tends to do or, I don't, I don't know, there's no, there's really no good term, but I, I think more and more what we're doing, and I think what a lot of us are doing in the permaculture space um, is just, uh, it's really about lifestyle redesign. I mean, I think I, I keep coming to the word lifestyle more and more in the last handful of years when I think about my own work, when I sit down with clients and I sometimes have a kind of clarifying moment of how we're really helping people we work with, 
um, I realize it's it, it's often it's most often a lifestyle thing. It's it's rooted in people adjusting their lifestyles, and and it's an, it's also all about empowerment. So I think more and more, I don't have a good label, but it's about it's a, a you know a personal empowerment um, consultant to uh, fix problems in your own life and hopefully in the landscape and the living world around you. You know that's kind of a long. A long title. I don't know if they all have capitals at the beginning or what, but <laughs> that's 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 kind of what it's about for us. I'm glad you put the label lifestyle design onto that. That label has been popularized among the some of the online world of young men and women working to essentially create a business to uh, to fund their lifestyle. Uh, with mm. the idea that if I can create some sort of virtual or online business that requires a minimum effort from me, that that will set me free. And I think that's certainly a great, a viable um, aspect. But the problem is that's only a financial solution. I don't view that as an integrated solution. It only maybe solves one aspect of life, which is a financial aspect of life. And the only point of the financial aspect of life is to fund you know, the, the needs that we have on a daily basis. And mm-hmm. so I think that by approaching the problem at every level, maybe we can find better solutions. I'd love for you to kick off mm-hmm. and share with me how, if I came to you as a consulting client and I were going to say, Ben, listen, you know, my family, I'm trying to create uh, a better lifestyle for myself and my family. How would you think through did that from a design perspective where would you start what components would you consider and how would you guide me through that process mm-hmm. yeah i think i would start the same way someone um you know is, is the same way someone who would want to design or be able to help you design an off-grid house would start um and this is how Amory Lovins always talks about, you know, energy challenges is what are the needs? You know, what are the loads in the system? Like when we think about making a house independent of the power grid, for instance, you, you start by thinking, well, not how am I going to make all the power I need? You start by thinking, how am I going to have, how am I going to get by on as little power as possible? Because it's expensive and, ha- and it contains a lot of compromises to make power. So what are my loads? You know, what do I need to run in the home? whether it's a freezer or a refrigerator or different lights. And then how do I get around, how do I need as few of those as possible or how do I reduce the amount of electricity that each of those things uses? So in the same way, analogous to that, I would want to understand what's that person need? What do they think they need? Of course, you'll, the answer you'll get is, is what they think they need, usually in the beginning of the conversation. And then we'll, we do we facilitate a conversation where we try to get at, okay, what are the core needs truly that you have to be happy? And often, well, always, if someone says, you know, I need a car and I need $50,000 of income a year um, and a 33,000 square foot house or whatever it may be, whatever the physical needs are, as you start drilling down to, bro, really, what what really keeps you satisfied and what, what really makes you psyched about life. It has nothing to do with those physical things. And so we start moving into a space where we can think about, okay, what, what is the minimum of the physical you needs to support physical needs to support those, um, more call it spiritual needs or, or whatever we want to call it. Um, and so we start drilling down on that and, and thinking about, with people, how they can um, 
reduce their quote-unquote load. Because once you reduce your load, the less you know, economic inputs you need to live, the more freedom you have off the bat to actually design your landscape building system and really your lifestyle as a whole. I mean, there's no one... Um, there's, there's really no one who has more leverage over their lifestyle than that person who's kind of um, simplified things down as much as possible. So that's, that's a great starting point. You know, people are willing to work with uh, in that practice to very different degrees. You know, I'm, I'm kind of hardcore compared to a, a mainstream American suburbanite, but I'm actually... Um, you know, not hardcore at all as far as my own physical needs in my life compared to some people I know who live, you know, with far less physical resources. Um, so, so you know, it varies. Where people are willing to attack that problem varies greatly. And then we look at, okay, how do you supply for the load, right? So if you defined, I need 2,000 kilowatts, you know, a month or whatever, 10,000 kilowatts a year, whatever it might be, how do I... Um, how do I come up with with those kilowatts in this in this context? It'd be how do I come with with um, with that money, and um, that is also uh, always revolves around a conversation about what do what do you love to do? What do you love to do, and what are you great at doing? Because I think those two things are central. If you're not doing something that you're not really good at, particularly talented at, you're probably not going to like it that much, and vice versa. If you're um, if you don't like it that much, you're probably not going to be that good at it. And I see so many people doing, you know, something that doesn't even meet either of those criteria. And I think it seems to me that people, anyone that thrives is usually meeting both of those criteria, at least most of most days, you know, not all the time for sure, but, um, most of the time. Would you describe your personal lifestyle and how you have built design, intelligent design into your personal lifestyle? Mm-hmm. I'd love to. I think it's, it's emerged quite organically. You know, I'm, um, you know, just to kind of contextualize things, I mean, I'm standing outside my wood shop right now um, and I'm watching the snow fall really hard and I'm looking out at a landscape that basically every tree I see we've put in the ground at some point in the last 10 years and most of those have started to give us food and looking at a greenhouse that I just picked kale out of uh, for a salad a couple hours ago and kind of looking around at a system that I haven't created but I've helped create very heavily co-created is probably a better term and um, I think there's a, a lot of like simple ways I could say that happened. Well, I, I did this and this and that, and, you know, I did this and then the other, th- you know, I put one step in front of the other and did this very logical progression. But really, I think, you know, to be most honest, I would have to start by saying um, the where my life is now, and I'm very thankful for where it is now. I think it's working out very well for me. Um, I wouldn't really want it any other way. It, it's, it is that way because I think I've just followed what I love to do. I've also had a lot of, of, you know, a good community of, of family and friends, and I've relied on that community. Um, but really, I've just done what I love to do, and I've used the resources, whatever they are around me, to, to do what I love to do every day. And I think 
um, in somewhat of an uncompromising way. I mean, I hated school the first 12 years of my life. You know, I absolutely hated more than most anyone else who was sitting in those rooms with me. Um, so I had to be very, I had to actually really rebel from the structure that I was in because it wasn't, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and it wasn't what, you know, I could be good at either necessarily. Um, so I think another piece of that, and I know this is a little bit, um, imprecise what I'm saying, but another piece of that is, is I guess I'm thankful for a pretty significant lack of self-discipline in the way, if self-discipline is doing something you don't want to do day after day and, and kind of undertaking the grudgery that seems all too common in the world. Um, I just somehow very instinctually just, you know, wasn't okay with, um, trading my days away, sitting inside doing something I didn't want to do. I had a very, very low tolerance for that. And I think I'm glad I did because if I didn't, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be here right now. Um, and I, I, I can't imagine being in a better place. I mean, maybe, maybe I would be, but I certainly, you know, am very happy for where I am right now in life and what I'm, the opportunities I'm afforded. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with staying very focused on, on what it is that one loves. For me, that was being outdoors. I didn't know anything more than that until I got to college. I just knew I wanted to be outside. I mean, the sun would come out on like a November day in Rochester, New York, where I grew up. And I would just pick up my bag and walk out of class. And it was obvious I wasn't going to the bathroom because I was taking my backpack with me. And the class had started, you know, 10 minutes early or earlier. And the sun, would, I knew the sun was coming out for two hours, you know, and that's it. Maybe the whole week in November. And I wasn't going to spend those two hours, you know, in, indoors and not be kind of part of, of what was happening, you know, uh, on the earth at that time, you know, in the outdoor world. I just, that's where I felt alive. Uh, and still do. So I think all of this whole permaculture regeneration thing is all just chasing that same line of kind of instinctual reasoning down for me personally. Now there's a lot of other, you know, more precise steps that I've taken, but that's, I think that's at the core of it for my own story anyway. Yeah. So I have the advantage of having read your book, which, by the way, of all the books I've read, your book is called The Resilient Farm and Homestead, might be the most beautiful book on the subject that I've ever seen. It's absolutely gorgeous. I'm sure you put a lot of work into that. Thanks a lot. That's, that's, that's great to hear. It, it, was, it was a bit of work, for sure. And also, just your designs. And I, are, I don't know if you're the one actually producing them or if you have an artist working with you, but your designs are just are, are stunningly beautiful. So thanks. Yeah, Cornelius Murphy, who's who's a, my co main colleague and holds in the business whole system design, is the illustrator for that book. And I, I give him all my rough chicken scratch, and he makes it, <laughs> he makes it look really, uh, really compelling. It it really it really makes a big difference. So having read your book and being familiar a little bit with your work, where I'm trying to lead you is actually to discuss some of the practical details of how you have integrated designing for your own needs into your lifestyle. So my perspective, and I'd like you to give some specifics and walk people through essentially how it works, but you've designed for your food needs, your nutrition needs, your, your shelter needs, your, you, you've brought all of the physical human needs together because often 
what I I get as a as a financial planner is people just say I need X amount of dollars per month, and that's a mm-hmm. that's a useful goal. But sometimes you need to look at what do I need the X number of dollars per month to do. So I'd like you to describe how you think about your lifestyle and how you've designed it to meet your fuel needs, your your housing needs, all of these things together in an intelligent way. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, I think. Um you know, that's also emerged organically, but it's definitely come from a focus first and foremost on, you know, the hierarchy of needs, the most basic, putting the most basic needs before needs that aren't as basic. So, for instance, I still don't have a fo- solar photovoltaic system. Most of the time you want to have a sustainable, quote unquote, lifestyle in, in this culture. And the first thing you do is put up solar panels. Well, solar panels will still be the last thing I end up doing. I, I plan to actually put up some, some more photovoltaics, but this, the electricity is not as basic of a need as food. So what we've started with is our food and water systems and our shelter systems, right? Because if, if the order of operations is staying warm, not, not freezing to death, and where I live in Vermont, you know, that's, a, that's basic. Um, you know, you're not going to freeze to death and in uh, you know Southern California, but you are in a good chunk of the world, so you got to have a shelter that keeps you warm with a minimal amount of input going into it. For us, in a forested region in the world like New England, you can't beat wood heat. And if you really insulate your house well and you detail it pretty well and you have a good amount of mass, you can actually cut your fuel wood need, whether no, no matter what fuel you're using, drastically right off the bat. So we started with that. We started with you know, getting our buildings in order, um, getting everything wood powered. You know, the first thing I did when I bought the house here, which existed and isn't a very well insulated house, we actually built this kind of secondary space um, near it so it could be very high performance because there's only so much renovation you can do necessarily unless money's no object. And uh, the first thing I did was put a wood stove in it and started collecting firewood and, and meeting my own basic heating needs. I mean, I think the house that I moved into went from probably the woman who lived in it before me spent $2,500 a year to $3,000 on, on heat and hot water, and immediately we were spending less than 1000 So that was slashed, and now we spend you know, less than four or $500 on that house, and our other living space, it's really essentially free. I mean, it's the cost of chainsaw gas which might be 10 to $15 to pro- harvest and process the firewood we use um, to heat 1,500 square feet, and that gives us all our heat and hot water. So heating was central, food, water is central. We're fortunate to have pretty good access to water in this part of the world, but we started collecting rainwater and also um, managing water in the landscape better, which which there's a lot to, but it's, it's, it's a pretty basic approach. I outline it in my book, and a lot of people in the permaculture space are all about that already. Um, and then we started getting on top of our food systems. So, you know, basically started ripping up my lawn within the first couple of years of being here. And now we grow, you know, most of our own calories for most of the year. And um, we might spend, I don't know what we spent on food beforehand, but we've cut it by, you know, 80 to 90%. Um, you know, now when we go to the co-op, the, the food store nearby, you know, every now and then we get some chocolate or coffee, although we've really have given up coffee for the most part. Um, we get some spices, you know, here and there. Sometimes we'll buy some apples if we don't have any. But, uh, you know, we're not buying much of our staples anymore or really almost any vegetables. Um, 
so we've gotten those aspects in in order: shelter, heat, water, food, and now in the last few years, we're really working on the health, on the other health aspects, um, like the medicinal aspects in particular. Uh, growing more herbs, expanding our herbal medicine, kind of the home apothecary, and really expanding the opportunities for that in the landscape, both through learning plants and fungi better so we can just go wildcraft them in the woods for free, and also actually dedicating garden space um, and time to growing a lot of just baseline herbs in the garden, which help keep us healthy as human beings have relied on these plants for thousands of years to do the same. And, um, you know, we're starting to just re-recognize those basic needs in the modern era now. So we're, we're working on that a lot more in the last few years. My wife is a naturopathic doctor and clinical herbalist and, and, um, she, she's, she's made a living doing, um, holistic health work for, um, about almost 20 years. And, um, so she's been a big resource on that front. Um, to expand the homestead and, and farm in that direction. Um, yeah, so those are those are some of the basic needs we've gotten gotten our 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 heads around and our hands around, and all of that. Just like you said, I mean that 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 opens up the door to um, to more freedom for us. It takes a lot of time, and people always say that they're like, "Well, but doesn't that take a lot of time? Couldn't you just be going and making money instead of being in the garden? Then you could go buy the food." Absolutely. I mean, I could go make enough money in the time I spent in the garden. I could make m- enough money to buy way more, make way greater quantity of food than I grow in the garden. But A, it's not the same quality of food. It's, it's, not, it's incomparable. You know, the food you harvest in your front yard is you just can't buy food that good. And B, um, it's what would you spend your, what would you rather spend your time doing? And for me, being in the garden, you know, harvesting fruit around in the yard or going looking for mushrooms up in the woods, that's really what I'm alive to do. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying, I'm not doing it to save money. It does save a lot of money, but that's not my main motivation. I'm just doing something that I love to do. So I often tell people, you know, don't do this out of, you know, feeling like it's a chore or you're trying to get to some destination by doing this. You know, do it if you like to do it. If you don't like being in the garden, with your hands in the dirt, then, you know, don't grow food. <laughs> you know, it's, it's in some ways it's very, very simple. Um, it probably always hasn't been that simple because sometimes you have to grow food just to survive in certain contexts, you know, in certain places in the world still. But, um, luckily for me, I actually like doing, I like meeting my basic needs. It's just something that's very, very satisfying. One of the things that most appeals to me about intelligent design is the ability to A, think ahead, and B, stack functions together so that many things can be met with the same resources uh, Mm -hmm. to try to use resources in the most efficient manner. And I actually love to do this on the financial engineering side of things, basically thinking how can I, uh, how can I use this money and get multiple benefits off of it. Uh, but that can be applied, in my mind, at every, at every level of life. And that's what really appeals to me about 
uh, the work that you're that you, that you guys are doing. I mean, I think of uh, you, you have that. Uh, let's see. Was it, I think it was it was it in your book that I read about your like you have your wood stove built where it, it heats your house and it cooks your food and it warms your water all the same three functions, right? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yep, baking it and it dries clothes. It even it's a clothes dryer. It does like five five core functions. Describe how that works and how you have that uh, set up. Sure. Well, that's just an old wood cook stove. They've been making the same wood cook stove or a similar stove to it for, you know, more than a hundred years, probably, you know, maybe two hundred years. The one I happen to have is made in Ireland, and I got it used for seven hundred fifty bucks uh, on Craigslist. And um, that, if you just put that in your house, that would save the average person about fifteen to two thousand dollars a year right off the bat in the first year. So, I mean, what a, you know, from a financial planning perspective, there's not a lot of things that are that are much smarter than you know, oh, I'll make an investment of one x and save three x in the same year. There's not a lot of things that that are that quick of a payback, I think. Um, so just from that perspective, it's great. But for us, um, it has a lot of other benefits. It's totally resilient. You know, it's it's a basically a, a break-proof system. The power was flickering last night in this major snowstorm we've been getting, and Erica, my wife, was like, "Oh, I feel so bad for people who don't have a wood stove, because when the power goes out, their house freezes." And you know, we're looking at a system that's just so basic. You know, it's really a no-brainer. And, and that, it, you know, it'll run. It doesn't know. The wood stove doesn't know if the power is on or not. It just keeps doing its thing. So the simplicity of it and the, the resilience of that system is, is really as big of a benefit as its, as its financial function. So there's, there's those two key functions. And then the functions that it performs for us, like you said, cooking, um, hot water, which is a really exciting function. Because a lot of people know you can heat your house on a wood stove. But in cooking on a wood stove, that's not, you know, too new of an idea. But heating hot water with it is just not something we see very often. And all it is is there's just a little water jacket in the back of the stove, a little stainless steel tank that holds about a gallon. And you plumb the, from the bottom of the, that tank into a, a water. You, I got a, a free hot water tank that my neighbor was throwing away, an electric hot water tank. So everyone know what those 40-gallon electric hot water tanks look like. You get one of those. You mount it behind the stove or above the stove. You can put it on a floor above the stove if you want, like on the second floor if the stove's on a first. And you basically connect that to this water jacket in the back of the stove. You can hook up any stove with one of these water jackets, but the one we happen to have is made, it comes, some of these stoves actually come with a water jacket, but any stove you could retrofit to have a water jacket. It's just a way of that firebox heating hot water as the hot water rises it ex- uh, excuse me as it heats up it expands so it rises becomes less buoyant or more buoyant excuse me and so hot water rises just like hot air and so it's you can create a system called a thermosiphon a convection loop where the hot water moves through the stove into the tank and back through the stove perpetually cycling itself with no pump so it's moving itself without the need for a pump. So again, no need for electricity there or some piece of the system that can break or will break like a pump eventually will. And so within three, four hours of firing up this wood stove, we have enough heat to heat a 1,500-square-foot building, and we have like 40 gallons of water at 140 degrees. So there's enough water for you know, two very luxurious showers essentially for free. So that hot water system is just using the excess heat of the stove – 
and giving you a whole nother core function, hot water. In a cold climate, in a cold climate, hot water is no joke. I mean, being able to take a hot shower is really, you know, it's almost as important as eating in some ways. It's, it's a pretty core function. Um, so that, that particular system is, is really spectacular. I'm just amazed, you know, as people come through our permaculture courses and we show this system or in tours and, um, they're like, well, why don't more people have these? We've never, you know, most people in our permaculture courses have never seen that system before. And I hadn't really until I built one, I'd seen one once in college, but it was a little, a little different. And, you know, I always have to say, I, I really don't know. I, I, you know, don't have any idea why these aren't in every home in a cold part of the world. Um, well, I, I mean, I do have an idea. I don't have a sensible idea about it. The only idea I have about it is that, you know, people aren't focused on that. They go flip up their thermostat and they pay a 2000 or $4,000 heating bill every, every year. And that's just how it is. You know, it's not like, well, let's do this a different way. And for us, you know, that different way is, is a kind of core part of our lifestyle. We're, we're, we're very interested in meeting our basic needs and not just burning up a bunch of, you know, fracked propane to have a hot shower. You know, for us, it's like, why do I need to, to, to destroy an aquifer to take a hot shower? You know, like propane mining does to heat your hot water, right? There's that kind of direct consequence. And I'm just not someone who can who can put gas in my car or feel hot water come out, come out of the tap and not think about, all right, what am I doing to some place to have this water be hot? You know, what's my role in that impact? And that's just, you know, maybe it's a blessing, maybe it's a curse, but it's something I always have thought about for most of my life. It's not something I can kind of avoid thinking about just how my, maybe how my head works. And I think a lot of people who are into taking care of, taking charge of their own resource use in their own life, are probably wired the same way. They just, they want to know, you know, what goes into keeping them alive. But strangely enough, it, it doesn't seem most people seem that most people um, have an interest in that. So we, we have the world we live in today, I guess. You said you bought your wood stove used. Do you know how old it is? It's, um, I think mine's probably from the seventies. It's a Waterford Stanley. What intrigues me about it is if I look at it just from a sheer efficiency perspective. So if you have a wood stove that's 40 years old, let's say, and it still is working perfectly fine today, and I would assume if it's anything like the wood stoves I've seen, there's no reason why it couldn't be working perfectly well 100 years from now. Perhaps the water tank would rust out and you'd have to fix that you know, and replace that. But the basic... sure. The basic stove should maintain its integrity for a century or a couple of centuries. And mm-hmm. I think about the efficiency of that design. Now, it does have drawbacks, but I, I was just sitting here thinking like all the ways that you can stack function. So you're heating your house, heating your water, drying your clothes, baking, you know, baking your bread, cooking your vegetables on that same, that same uh, stove. System. System. Yeah. Plus, even just to to fire it, so you can grow your own wood, and growing your own wood has multiple benefits. You can mm-hmm. grow your own wood and improve the ecosystem because you are planting and harvesting a tree. You can do that in an intelligent way, whether that's you know the systems that have existed for centuries of coppicing the wood. You know, it's mm-hmm. simple, low maintenance, makes the thing grow, makes the makes the trees grow. You get your exercise chopping the wood, uh, 
Um, exactly. I would assume that certainly can be a chore, but I would imagine it's less of a chore based upon how efficient the house can be designed to where you probably don't need 18 cords of firewood every, every winter to, uh, to heat your home. So you can apply all these benefits and to go and get the, to go and get the wood, it doesn't cost you anything other than the labor involved. And you can hire that done if you need to. But even if you hire the labor done, you buy your wood from a local person who, or, or pay somebody to come and harvest it on your property, if you have the property, it's still so much more efficient than a system of purchasing, you know, liquid petroleum products from hundreds of miles away, if that, or maybe shipped across the ocean in a, in a tanker ship to heat your house with. It just makes sense to me. It's more efficient. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, the multipliers are, are really there. I mean, I didn't think about, I sh- I'll, I'll use that actually from now on. I think in our permaculture courses, one of the yields of the wood, of the wood stove, of wood heat, is that you save however many hundreds of dollars a year on a gym membership. You're absolutely right. You don't, you know, it's it's a gym membership saved to process your own firewood. Right. <laughs> Not that I'd go get a gym membership, but if you did, you know, hauling, cutting, splitting, stacking, hauling again, and burning firewood, you know, Robert Foss, the famous quote about wood warms you twice, you know, I should like to say he probably didn't process his wood completely because if it only warmed him twice, then he must have had his wood at least delivered and then he stacked it and hauled it inside. But uh, <laughs> so it warmed them, you know, it warms you when you burn it and haul it. So for us, it warms us, yeah, about five times, let's say. So, yeah, the functions are, are really endless, like you, like you just illustrated so well. I think just the, the big reason we don't see this more is the one, the one major cost, if you can call it a cost, is it just demands a whole different lifestyle approach to really leverage it fully. You know, it's not... You don't flick a switch and have the wood stove load load itself and and dry your clothes for you. It's it's not it's not automated. It's a much more manual lifestyle, and you can do a more. Ma- and we have worked with a lot of clients who are engaging a more manual, direct lifestyle, part time. They're still, you know, they're not like a kind of almost full time homesteader like myself. They're still business professionals or teaching professionals or whatever else they do but they're taking on a more manual lifestyle part-time. So you can make great headway part-time and still, let's say, have wood heat or certainly wood backup heat. But I think to really engage the full, what I see as the full benefits of the manual lifestyle, it's probably like a 20-hour-a-week thing. You know, I don't, I don't think you need to be super hardcore and do a 40, 50, 80 hours a week like some people certainly do. But I find that there's a there's a threshold of a, once you about are able to about put about 20 hours a week in you can really have most of your food almost all your heat and have this very and all your med most of the med if you're healthy all your medicine or if you're not very very sick all your medicine and have most of everything you need most days from the landscape around you you know without having to be a full-time thing once you get set up which does you know, take, it takes multiple years. It's not something that happens overnight. Um, but it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a whole, a bit of a different lifestyle. That's for sure. And I, I do try not to romanticize the things that were hard. You know, I know that my grandmother uh, grew up or she, she, my, my father grew up on a ranch in the, upper high mountains of Colorado 
and you know she cooked on a wood stove and cooking on a wood stove is nowhere near as convenient although i've never done it but i'm certain it's nowhere near as convenient as simply uh, firing up the the electric stove but if you see the benefits mm -hmm. of it what i think of is all of that is coming from one piece of equipment that can be purchased once and never has to be purchased again whereas right. if i'm you know i need to replace my water heater this this month uh i need you know a clothes dryer How, what's the length of the l potential lifespan of a good clothes dryer five years ten years maybe uh a water heater all of these things have a life cycle so now i'm permanently needing to replace these appliances over time why don't we apply the same design intelligence that we have applied to other areas of life to some of the traditional technologies and improve those technologies without losing some of the things that are good about them. So let's That's apply a great, yeah. and design a better wood stove that works more efficiently, more effectively, that keeps heat m more easily so that it's easier to cook on and keep the benefits without just going to a completely different technology. Yeah, that, and that brings up a huge point, which I, I think about a lot. Um, which is this kind of the, in, the hybridization of the old and new. We tend to, our brain tends to think of old ways and new ways and keep them in very separate categories and think that to learn an old way, you know, to know how to grow your own food or heat your house with wood means you can't you know, be on the cutting edge of new technologies coming out. Or I saw an amazing, it wasn't a spoof, but it should have been a YouTube video of a woman who was thanking Steve Jobs for um, kind of what she put as re reworking the operating system for a child. And it was a video, YouTube video of her kid looking at a magazine and being bored with it because it didn't do anything when she kind of swiped her fingers across the magazine. And then she gave the child probably like a two-year-old, um, a, you know, iPad or some tablet thing. And the kid was very engaged. And she was like, isn't this awesome? My kid now has no need for a magazine. And I see that like, well, why not learn both? Like, it can't, modern human beings, shouldn't we be able to learn new things without retreating from and becoming illiterate of the old ways and if they're old and they're still and they were around for thousands of years, there's some inherent value to them that chances are there actually might not be to something new which hasn't stood the test of time yet. So it's like, well, you know, we, we tend to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. And it seems to me it's like, why not keep all the parts? Why not keep all the literacies on the table to see what proves themselves over time? Um, and, you know, personally, I use a computer. I mean, I'm on an iPhone right now talking with you. I still utilize modern technology greatly if it has leverage that seems to be life-enhancing um, in terms of my lifestyle or in terms of helping you know, manifest the work I'm trying to manifest in the world to, to help others. But you know, it doesn't mean I still can't you know, learn how to, how to butcher you know, a deer or you know, a goose and, and you know, keep, keep literate with some of the very old ways of what it's meant to exist as a human being on this planet for a hundred thousand years. Right. Yeah. In my mind, that's, that is the key is to appreciate and learn the lessons of the past without romanticizing them and then integrate the developments without losing 
the benefits of the past. I find mm. having sat in hundreds of, of meetings with clients about their lifestyle, you know, one of the most common financial goals that I hear is people say, I want to spend more time with my family. You know, I want to spend more time with my kids, with my grandkids. And I, I grew up as a, as a, as a, boy, I enjoyed reading the uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder series, and the, my favorite of the series was Farmer Boy, and it was an account of, you know, a traditional farming family, and I thought to myself, I've always thought, how much time did that, fa did that father and that son spend together? Well, they spent a good amount of time, but they also did, had a lot of time doing hard work, but they were together, at least in that hard work. So here we've, we're making this transition of, I like spending time with my family. Now we all, the whole family is disintegrated. And now people are wanting to get back to it. But it's not that hard to get back to it. You just got to make some conscious decisions and different choices uh, to, to follow through and think about what the direct way to meet your goals would be. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. It's a very good point. I mean, a lot of a lot of the trade, the the, the trade we've made, uh, the the kind of the gamble we've made in in the modern lifestyle is that is that we'll have more of what we love, we'll we'll we'll, we'll be more and we'll get more, and that will make us be more by you know kind of specializing our lives to the extent that we have, and essentially working always through the medium of money to have the life we want. And I think, I, I think we're going to see, we're already starting to see an era herald in now where the belief in that promise is fading because I think we're realizing, just like you said, most of your clients want to just have that basic need to spend more time with their family. You know, that the promise that was put out there post-World War II with like, you know, um, science and the convenience, the utter convenience of science and technology is... You know, there's pieces of it, but it's just not that simple. It's not. It it can't deliver in in such a simple way. And I think we're we're starting to realize this. And this is where I think the modern homesteading movement is just one one of many responses to that to that place in history. We find ourselves now where we have some very basic needs that are going unmet. Even you know, even in a family where the parents make you know a hundred thousand dollars a year or, or more, you know, which should be completely adequate to have like a lot of personal freedom to do the things we love to do but but it's that you know the, the rat rat race is a really good term for it you know it's a pretty pretty precise term there are two themes i'd like to explore with you uh, as we kind of start to wrap up here and the first theme is the concept of resilience you obviously that's an important feature to you in that it was the part of the title of your book, The Resilient Farm and Homestead. Mm -hmm. And it really impressed me the way that you approached that, of simply in your design thinking of saying, I don't know what changes are going to come, but how can I prepare a design that will, that will handle those changes? And that's a question I get a lot with financial planning, is what's going to happen? And I think, well, I don't know what's going to happen. So how can we plan so that no matter what happens in the future, that our needs are cared for? Could you go over first some of the reasons why you think of you try to think about resilience in your planning, and then some of the methods that you employ to deal with that? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you. I think I'm one who tends to to believe that you know I'm not going to gamble on predicting the future because it seems like it's somewhat unpredictable. Even things like 
global warming. You know, I don't like the term global warming. I like the term global weirding because it's a complex system, the, the Earth's climate. Things could get colder. I like to take the approach of let's plan for all scenarios. And we call that in our book scenario planning, which is actually a term I've become aware of since writing the book is actually a term that, that other systems thinkers have already used. Um, but the idea being let's let's plan for as many scenarios as possible. Think think of the most likely events you think might transpire and plan for those first. I'm certainly not saying plan for the least likely events uh, first, plan for the most likely events first, for sure. But that doesn't mean wipe all the other possibilities off the table. You know, plan for those as well, especially once you get, you know, your proverbial shit together, once you get your house in order, once you get your home. And when I say house, I don't mean a house necessarily literally, although I, I, I mean it literally and figuratively. Once you get your own economics in order, your own basic lifestyle in order, then you can start drilling down the long list of other possible um, future scenarios that you might want to have your life be resilient in the face of. Now, that could be any number of things. I mean, it could be a, a, a large bump in how our global industrial food system functions because we know you, know, you don't have to um, be uh, someone who studies up on it every day to realize there's there's major vulnerability to the global food system, whether it's with pests or, um, you know, or, uh, plant diseases or supply and distribution uh, supply chain problems, whatever it might be, uh, fuel supply problems, there's a vulnerability there. So if you're interested in engaging that possibility, you start looking at, at, at solutions like maybe developing some, some local food system that's not from, that's not a thousand miles away. Maybe it's a hundred feet away in your front yard. Same with your heat, you know, your firewood, or same with your water, hopefully, because we all need water, you know, most every day. Same with financial resources, you know, it could be tools and skills versus just a lot of money in the bank account or along with a lot of money in the bank account. So um, I guess just to, to circle back to your question, I mean, we look at it in a lot of different ways, but mainly from a scenario planning perspective. And a lot of our clients who we, we assist come to us already, uh, the way I put it is they're kind of pre-sold. They're already, they already see what they think is the writing on the wall and they see um, a global techno industrial system, call it whatever you like, that when it works just right, it's pretty awesome for the people who are at the top. But when it, if it's not working just right, which they think might be the case here and there for at least periods of time, uh, it might not be so great for, for anyone. And um, so they're kind of working, as I say, to get the, their house in order um, in the face of those of those potential challenges. But I guess, you know, I would also de define risk, too, to try to answer in a roundabout way your question, hopefully. Risk being, you know, the likelihood of an event happening um, times the severity of the consequences of those of, of, a, of an event happening. So like, I think the example I use in my book is uh, a meteor, you know, comet hitting the earth, right? It, it's hopefully not very likely, but if it happens, it's very severe, you know, game over, change of epochs, right? We'll, we'll have to wait a billion years or something for maybe millions for, for some other, uh, you know, next, next chapter to unfold. 
but it's not very lo- not very likely. So the risk of that is relatively low, hopefully, if if it's unlikely, which we don't really know. Um, versus something like I lose my job, you know, I get fired at some point in the next twenty years. The consequences of that are not as high as the meat as the comet, but it's much more likely to happen. Or just I get sick, or I break my leg. Consequences are lower, although they're they're real, but the likelihood is higher. So maybe overall risk is higher in those situations. So just basic risk risk assessment and risk planning is something that we bring into our process as well uh, when it comes to resiliency. Um, and then there's a lot of other principles, which I elaborate on in the book, but just a basic principle of redundancy and having multiple ways to meet very basic needs, like water. You need water. So we have a well. If and when the well pump fails, well, we have rainwater off the roof. If that's not working for some reason, we have ponds. We can cut a hole in the ice with a handful of different tools we have on site to get water out of the ponds. You know, we could melt snow on a cook's on a wood stove, which we have multiple stashes of dry wood for, and they don't need electricity to run, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of, you know, redundancy in the system is very important, and the simplicity of a system is very important. And there's a lot of other pieces as well I get at in the book, but um, things like legibility, which often aren't thought about, like how legible is whatever system you're depending upon. Um, to you? Do you understand it? Do you know how to fix your furnace if it breaks, right? Or do you know how to how to deal with a system when it fails? Because we've built in, in our specialized modern world, we've built in so much illegibility, right? If your iPhone breaks, you don't think, oh, well, I could probably fix it. You know, let me open it up. You know, maybe I could I could fix, fix it this time. It might be a small problem. It's just like, I go back to the store and get a new iPod because there, there is no fix, you know, there is no legibility in like the maintenance of that type of system. Now, sometimes that's inherent in very high technology, but it's certainly, if it's, in, if it's inherent in technologies we need to, to meet our basic needs, then we have a very brittle situation and we're, we're in a very vulnerable situation then, which I don't think is very attractive to anyone. The last theme, and I'm actually might add one more after this, but the last theme that I wanted to ask you about is the concept of how to design for your needs in fa- from a financial perspective and from a basically a building financial resilience. I often get asked, there is more fear than I've ever seen in my life. Uh, more people have fear of... Uh, potential failures in financial systems and mm. we've seen some failures over past years people are concerned about failures of monetary systems failures of banking systems etc and so i get i've been asked about this dozens and dozens and dozens of times and i have some ideas but ultimately i find that when people are very fearful of massive failures in financial systems my answer to them has been there's not a financial solution to a financial system failure. And their ultimate solution is to get out of the financial system. Financial wealth, financial assets are not real assets. They're a a system that we've invented to account for real assets, for real wealth. So don't look to the financial system to protect yourself uh, if you're concerned about a failure of the financial system because you're just doing this, you know, this self-reinforcing problem where you're depending mm-hmm. on a system that's, that you're saying I'm concerned about it failing. If you're really concerned, get 
think through it from an from an out of the box perspective. If somebody came to you with that fear, from your perspective as a whole systems designer, where would you start them on the road as far as saying, how can I protect myself and my family and my wealth? How would you guide them on that road? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me um, let me just think about that for a second because that's you know that's quite um, you know there's a lot of levels to that you know and I, I think as with a lot of things I think it, it would highly depend upon who that person was and what resources they had and what inclinations and what talents they'd have. So I guess the first thing I would look at is just like we talked about with the loads analysis of an off-grid building in the beginning of our conversation. It's like what resources do you have available to you? Do you have a large family that lives in the town that you live in? You know, if so, great. Like that could play into this resiliency picture that we're trying to get at, you know, through your question. Um, if not, if, you know, everyone's dead or lives somewhere else, okay, that's not a resource. Maybe, you know, you have a resource of that you're a roofer and you could fix your neighbor's roofs, you know, in a certain, you know, in a certain situation. You have, you have something you can offer the people that live around you or, you know, you're a farmer or a plumber or you're really great at taking care of kids or, you know, taking care of animals or organizing people. They can be soft skills too, but essentially just firstly asking the question, well, what are your resources? You know, what do you really have to capitalize on? And, and capitalize on, you know, the word capitalize being a, a poor choice of words, you know, capitalize on is in manifest on, right? Um, in a non-financial way, in a more direct human-to-human relationship way. Um, so I, I think I would start the conversation on that front to, to really understand, you know, what a little bit of analysis, like what, what are the resources that people have to bring to the table? Um, and then, you know, we all have very similar needs as human beings. So that's where being a permaculture designer is kind of handy because we all need to eat. It's seemingly most of us need to eat most days. <laughs> so that's a basic need we all share, no matter who the client is, the, the, the fictitious client we're, referring to right now they'll need to eat they'll need water they'll need warmth you know they'll need shelter housing uh community uh safety so all of those are common needs so we have to also think about how to provision for those basic needs um and then you start getting into some of the things we've already talked about in this conversation i think about about those basic systems um but i think you know there's a lot to that that's a that's a difficult question i mean maybe is there some particular part of that of that question you're you're thinking of that you'd like me to to hit on? No, I think that's 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 good enough. And to, to respond how I've told people, I've said, listen, mm-hmm. if you are really concerned, because there's a lot of there's a today there's a lot of fear about this, then you, you've just given the answer that I've given. I said, if you're really concerned about it, there's not a financial solution that can help you. The key is provide for your needs, and then. As far as wealth, you need to invest your wealth that you currently have into a way where it has the potential to multiply. So then you have to go through a self-analysis perspective and say, what uh, skills and abilities and knowledge do I have 
then what are the needs and the desires of the marketplace? And how can I find the intersection between these things to meet the skills and the desires of the marketplace? And one of your constraints might be that you build into your plan. You might put a constraint in depending on what your, uh, what your focus is. So if you are, you know, in your situation, you're a perma- you're a designer, that's a very useful skill set. And your remuneration can be in the form of dollars and it can also be in the form of other forms of wealth, whether that's labor, whether that's gifts, whether that's the needs of life. Like this is how humanity, this is how humanity's developed is by paying attention to these basic needs and then finding ways to fulfill them. And the monetary system is in many ways a marvel of efficiency. And yet it does have weaknesses. So exploit the weaknesses and take advantage of the other things, but see through it and then look at it from a design perspective. You know, businesses that provide value, no matter what the monetary system is or no matter what the question is, no matter what the currency denomination is, those businesses and the people that control them will always accrue wealth because ultimately the money is a system of measuring the things that are really important. You can either grow the wood on your lot and you can go out and cut it or you can grow the wood on your lot and you can pay somebody to cut it or you can have somebody else grow the wood and cut it and bring you the wood or you can do it with something else they're all meeting the same basic human need we're just meeting them in different ways depending on what resources we have Mm-hmm. absolutely yeah I, I certainly agree with that so I guess the last question and almost a corollary of the previous one I find myself uh, this is for me personally, not not a fictitious person. Me living, you know, with my family here in West Palm Beach, I find myself continually inspired by what other people have been able to do and the resilience they've been able to build into their lives and the, imp- the improvements in their lifestyle and their their security and their health and their their homestead and all of that. But I find myself struggling to figure out how to actually do it in my situation. So I'm not in a cold climate and I'm in a a, uh, subtropical warm climate. And so I don't have a problem of uh, heating a house. I have a problem of cooling a house. And so I'm continually like stuck trying to figure out what do I actually need to do? What's the next thing for me to focus on? For someone, for me or for someone like me who's inspired but doesn't know where to turn next, what thoughts would you have as far as how to lay out a system of self-education and also how to lay out uh, a learning process, like how to coach myself through learning and acquiring the skills that I need to learn to improve my right. my homestead? Right. Well, I think, yeah, I think there's a few ways. I think there's three things that maybe would be identified right off. The first would be like maybe the last or it would be woven throughout your you just brought that up what's the learning process how can you learn the most important things you need to know um to to increase your resiliency and you know in your own lifestyle where you are in your context like you're saying and the other two things so those you know might be like books people videos whatever um and the other two things that i think of right off the bat are local resources, you know, which is connected with the learning piece, but it's also inspirational as well as informational. So who around you seems to have a better situation? If you're thinking, oh, I want more, I want something that I don't have. I want to move in some direction that I'm not far enough along in right now. When you're saying, let's say it's resiliency, do you know anyone around you in Southern California? And I'm sure you probably do 
who is further along in that path than you are and and what do they do you know spending time with them spending time with their systems you know learning as much as you can from those systems um, identifying what's great about their systems and maybe what's not and you know just spending just being able to hear from those people learning with those people and then the other piece which is what we do with clients quite often is what I would call like a resiliency audit which is just looking at your own basic lifestyle needs whether it's money water food cooling or heat um shelter you know your basic systems and what where do those how resilient are each of those systems and drilling down each one so okay where i live in southern california you know let's say in an urban context where's my water coming from right that's i can already know from being in southern california before that's not going to be you know the best picture of resiliency right off the bat um could it be? Maybe not, but how could it be improved? That might be actually a, a real tricky one for sure because some places you're not even allowed to collect the rainwater off your roof or if you do it might be kind of polluted or you don't maybe own the roof so you can't collect the rainwater off the roof. So sometimes that may a resiliency audit may lead someone to actually move <laughs> and that's, that's okay if it does. Um, you know, if someone wants to be serious about it. Um, you may look into food and maybe you have a small front yard that gets some sun. So you may realize, okay, I can meet, I could have some food, um, food production here. Or you may realize actually food production isn't the way I could be most food resilient and maybe actually becoming friends with a farmer might be, you know, it's not always as simple as, well, I want food resiliency, thus I should grow more food. Often that's the case, but only in certain contexts. You know, if you have, if you don't have land in your urban area, that's that's probably not the solution, um, but it doesn't mean you can't get closer to food resiliency. Albeit with a little bit of a disclaimer that there are certain resiliency sweet spots, if you will, um, that are probably found best in a relatively rural place, but where there's a lot of community and some density of people. It's not the full backwoodsy shotgun shack situation. And it's probably not, you know, the, you know, uptown Manhattan or, you know, downtown Los Angeles situation either. So there are some contexts which certainly are inherently more resilient than others. That's that's very important to mention. That being said, it doesn't mean we all we all can't improve our resilience greatly, no matter our context. Ben, I appreciate you making the time to come and and allocate your time to share with us and to teach us. I really appreciate it. So your website is wholesystemsdesign.com. And then also, aren't you doing a Kickstarter right now? We are. It's actually about to end in a few days, but um, or one, one more week or so. Is uh, We're doing it on our, on our permaculture courses to make them available in video. Um, that's called... Um, that's a, that's a, it's called permaculture skills, perma skills. If someone were to Google that Kickstarter, they'd find it. Has it been um, and then we have funded a, enough we have, yet, or, or you still need? Yeah, it's actually they just made a stretch goal awesome. to translate translate the courses into or the lessons into French, and they actually met that stretch goal, I think, recently as well. But the courses are still are happening every summer, so people can check that on online as well. That's exciting. If it's anything like any of the rest of your work, I'm sure it'll be beautiful. <laughs> so thanks a lot. Thank you. Be really cool. So thank thanks again so much for coming in on today. I appreciate it. 
Hey, thank you. And thanks for, you know, the work you do as well. And uh, we'll be in touch.